Welcome. You're listening to The Analytic Christian, where we explore topics in Christian philosophy and theology. I'm Jordan, and in this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Justin McGrayer, a professor of philosophy at Fort Lewis College. We'll be discussing the topic of skeptical theism. He'll lay out what it is, how it applies to the problem of evil and the problem of divine hiddenness, and then he'll summarize the four strongest arguments for skeptical theism and the four strongest arguments against skeptical theism. It'll be a really interesting discussion. I know you'll enjoy it. So let's get started. Hey there, Dr. McBrayer. Happy to be here. Will you just briefly tell us how you got interested in the topic of skeptical theism and feel free to mention any work you've done on the topic? Sure. Actually, I got interested in the topic of skeptical theism after reading the book of Job. So the book of Job is an attempt to wrestle with what's often called the problem of evil, sometimes the argument from evil. It's this question about why our world would contain nasty or evil things, given that it's been created by an all-good, all-powerful being. And if you read the book of Job, there's not really a clear answer as to why God has included all of this evil in the world. Some people sort of read it in such a way that God does provide an explanation. But actually, when Job interfaces with God, God asks him a bunch of questions like, who are you to even ask me these sorts of questions about what kind of world I would create? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the depths and so forth? So I I found that a really interesting response to the problem of evil or the argument from evil. And I wanted to try to think through whether that was a good response or not. So so who, who sort of had it right? Was Job right to be satisfied without answers to those questions? Or were his three friends right to try to offer explanations for all the bad things that happen in life? And it, it seems to me that Job was right, that we can be in a position where we can't explain bad things in the world, and yet that doesn't give us a reason to be an atheist. And so that's sort of how I got interested in this question of whether skeptical theism is the right kind of response to arguments from evil. Very interesting. Okay, well, what I want to uh, do very briefly at the beginning is just define some terms so that we're clear from uh, from the rest for the rest of the interview when we start laying out arguments for skeptical theism and arguments against it. So, what is skeptical theism? So, the concept of skeptical theism really has two parts, two components. On the one hand, a skeptical theist is a theist, which is to say someone who believes that God exists, where God indicates the most perfect being possible. So skeptical theists are theists. And that's a claim about what the world is like. It's a metaphysical claim. And then conjoined with that is a kind of skeptical claim, which is an epistemic claim. It's a claim about what we know or can't know. And in particular, what skeptical theists are skeptical of is a human's ability to grasp God's reasons for acting in the world. Now, that skepticism, Jordan, can be quite narrowly constrained or it can be more general. At at its most narrow, skeptical theists think that no human is justified in thinking that a particular instance of evil had no purpose behind it or was gratuitous or superfluous. So when it comes to identifying particular bad things in the world, 
none of us have reason to think that some particular instance of evil had no no greater good that came from it or no greater purpose. Sometimes skeptical theists, theists push that envelope a little bit wider, and they'll, they're willing to say things like, look, and, and even for other sorts of things, humans are in no position to try to tell whether God is acting in the world in that particular case, briefly because God has access to so many more reasons than we do that we're really in the dark about those kind of particulars. And so we should remain skeptical about how particular facets of creation relate to some overall scheme. So skeptical theism has two parts, one metaphysical, a commitment to to the belief that God exists, one epistemic, a kind of commitment to be reluctant to make claims about what's happening in the world and, and, and those the connections between those things and God's purposes. Very good. And in the paper that we're discussing, you wrote a paper on skeptical theism for the journal Philosophy Compass. In that paper, you call these kind of judgments all things considered judgments, correct? That That's, a, that's right. So I, I don't think skeptical theists are skeptical about making what philosophers sometimes call other things being equal judgments. So look, if you know that God is good, then you know that other things being equal, God would prefer that people are not harmed. God would prefer that people be happy. God would prefer that people avoid pain. So we can make these kind of judgments about other things being equal. But what we can't make a judgment about is is what would happen in some particular case. And the reason skeptical theists are reticent to make a judgment in a case like that is that God might have reasons for allowing harm or pain, or danger, or sickness that we have no access to. So even though we know that, in general, God's opposed to these things, we're not in a position to make a judgment call about what God would do in some particular situation. So the skepticism isn't a skepticism about goodness in general, or motives or reasons in general. It's a skepticism about how they apply in some concrete case. Very good. So there's a form of inference that I want you to define here, that when we're looking at particular cases, uh, we some people appeal to this kind of inference, and we call it a no inference. So what is a no yeah. inference? Yeah, so the name actually comes from uh, a philosopher from the Midwest, Stephen Weikstra, who taught at Calvin for years. And Stephen Weikstra coined this term that sometimes people make no seem inferences. And he named them after the little tiny bugs that bite you in the summer that you know they're out there and you're swatting them, but you know see them. So they're around, you know they're around, but you know you feel them, but you can't see them. And he thinks that sometimes people reason in that way too. They look around the world, they don't see a particular kind of thing, and they infer that it's not there on their in, on the basis of their inability to detect it. So that's a noceum inference. It's starting with an absence of evidence and concluding that you have evidence of absence. So it's starting with a premise about your inability to see something and you're drawing a conclusion about what the world is really like on the basis of that. So that's a noceum inference. And here's, a, here's a, an example of how an inference might, like that might go. You might notice that there are bad things that happen in the world around you for which you can think of no good reason that they should be allowed. A family friend suffers from cancer. Someone's injured in a car accident. A hurricane strikes the coast of Louisiana, as happened this afternoon. 
And you might think, okay, what reason would God have for allowing people to suffer the horrors of cancer or allowing people to suffer in car accidents or to create a world in which we have hurricanes? You might think about that, not be able to identify a reason. You, you think really hard about it and you don't see any reason for allowing something like that. And so you conclude that there are no reasons for allowing something like that. That's an instance of a no seem inference. You start with what you don't see and you conclude that there must not be any of that sort of thing. Very good. <laughs> and it might be worth mentioning here that if, if we set aside cases like what you described where we're talking about bad things happening, if we take maybe a more mundane case, there can be good noceum inferences and there can be bad noceum inferences. Do you think that yeah, that's, that's relevant exactly to, right. to do here? That's exactly right. So I don't mean to give you the impression that that form of inference is always fallacious. It's not. The really interesting question is trying to sort the cases that are good from the cases that are not. So let me just give you an example of, of one that I think is good and one that I think it's not. Some non-controversial examples, and then we can apply it to evils and God and that sort of thing in a bit. Suppose you wonder whether there are any elephants in your room, and you look around, and you don't see any elephants, and you conclude as a result of that looking that there are no elephants around. That seems like a kind of no see em inference. You looked around, you no see them, you infer that they're not there. That seems perfectly fine. Here's an instance that's not so good. You wonder whether there are any germs in your house, especially during these pandemic times. That might be something you'd want to know about. So you look around the room, you don't see any germs, and so you conclude that there are no germs. That's another no inference, and I take it that inference is a bad one. Just because you don't see any germs, that's not good evidence that they're not there. And so when it comes to questions about the argument from evil or the argument from divine hiddenness, the crucial question is whether the no inference is more like the elephant case or more like the germ case. And skeptical theists are people who think it's more like the germ case. Gotcha. Very, very clear examples. Okay, so clear? now I want to get... I want to return to what you just described a minute ago, where it was a kind of argument using a no CM inference that was an argument from evil. So let me put up a an argument from evil here. I'll read it out. This follows, you say in the paper, William Rose argument from gratuitous yeah. evil. So premise one would say, at least some of the evils in our world appear gratuitous emphasis on appear gratuitous premise two therefore at least some of the evils in our world are gratuitous three if god exists there is no gratuitous evil four therefore god does not exist so that was an argument that i think comes up uh, it, it's a it's an argument from gratuitous evil, and that's that's a pretty powerful version of an argument from evil, one from uh, gratuitous evil. So, how would the skeptical theists, uh, what strategy you know, do they use when they look at this argument? So, the skeptical theist would try to block the inference from the first claim to the second claim. 
If the first claim is a claim about what appears to be the case, and the second claim is one about what is the case, the skeptical theist wants to block that inference. And so I actually think in some ways the skeptical theist response to the argument from evil is more generous than other kinds of responses because we're granting that awful things happen in the world for which we see absolutely no reason whatsoever. I mean, I think if you're if you believe in God and and you've lived in the world for any amount of time, if you've ever read a newspaper, you know there's awful things that happen to people and people suffer terribly. And to kind of casually wave that off and say, well, it's all for the good or, oh, I can explain why God would do that, seems to me a level of hubris that goes beyond what, what we owe one another. And so I sort of feel like the skeptical theist can come to the side of the person who's offering the argument from evil and say, you know what? I agree with you. I can't see a reason for this either. This is a terrible thing that I can't even fathom. I have no idea why it's part of our world. So in that, in that point, there's sort of agreement between the person offering the, the argument from evil and the skeptical theist. The difference comes then with what we do with that unease or that inability to identify a reason. Some people think that if you can't identify the reason, then there must not be one. And then you get this kind of argument for atheism. And the skeptical theist says, well, hold on a second. Just because we can't see a reason doesn't mean there is one. So I want to grant that we're in the dark about why this is going on. But I don't want our darkness or our inability to, to finger a reason to yet then function as an argument for atheism. So that's how skeptical theism would sort of interface with that kind of argument from evil. Very good. So the skeptical theist can agree really with, with that argument uh, with premise one and premise three, it's premise two where they say, therefore, at least some of the evils in our world are, they, they would say, well, the, I guess the justification for thinking that's true relies on reasoning that we're not really in a good position to, to know. So it's that's that exactly inference right. from one to two, you said that, that they want to target. That's exactly right. So to put it succinctly, the skeptical theist view is that premise one is not evidence for premise two. Very good. That's even better. <laughs> okay, so how is this strategy different than the strategy of someone that offers a theodicy? Good. Okay. John Milton wrote about the attempt of humans to explain the ways of God, and he called that a theodicy. And so what theodicies try to do is they try to respond to arguments from evil by trying to explain the role that these evils play in the grand scheme of things. So theodicists are in the business of explaining the goodness or the justification for evils in our world. And anybody who's read much about the problem of evil has probably experienced or read some of those um, theodicies. So for example, people say things like, well, the reason there are bad things in the world is because God gave us free will. And once you give people free will, you can't stop people from choosing badly. That's an example of a theodicy. You're offering an explanation for the badness in the world. And the explanation is it's a necessary condition for this other good thing, free will. Or to give another example, some people like uh, the late philosopher John Hick offer what they call soul crafting theodicies. The idea is 
God needed to create a world in which we have to struggle, in which we have to develop courage, in which we have a chance to exercise sympathy with people who are suffering, because that gives us a chance to build our character and make us better people. Whether that's true or false, again, notice what he's doing. He's trying to explain the evil in our world. And so that's a different strategy than the skeptical theist. So if you think of how that argument from evil goes, when the person advocating the argument from evil says there are unjustified or gratuitous evils, the theodicist says, no, they're not. The skeptical theist says, we can't tell. And those are very different responses. So to make the argument go through, we need the assumption that there are gratuitous evils in the world. Theodicist try to refute that assumption. Skeptical theist try to undermine that assumption. Very good. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the next question I had for you then was about the argument from hiddenness. So let me put this argument on the screen and we're going to notice there's some similarities here. Uh, so premise five, if God exists, then he would at all times make himself known to all creatures capable of of entering into a relationship with him. Six, but God has not made himself known at all times to all creatures capable of entering into a relationship with him. Seven, therefore, God does not exist. So, same same kind of question here. How does the skeptical theist respond to this argument from divine hiddenness? Just really quickly, Jordan, I can't see your screen, so I want to make sure the people who are watching can see your screen. I don't see your um, They can. They yeah, up. it's okay. the way Skype's set up. They can see it, but you can't. Perfect. I already know the argument, so I don't have to see it. Okay. The argument from divine hiddenness is another atheistic argument. And just put it in a nutshell, the idea is briefly that if this world had been created by God, everyone would believe it. But not everyone believes it. And so this world was not created by God. The idea is a perfect being who wanted a relationship with us would not hide or, or keep himself in the dark from people who were seeking evidence of his existence. But as it turns out, there are a lot of really earnest people in the world who would like to know more about God, who would like to believe in God, but find themselves unconvinced because the evidence is so ambiguous and the ambiguity of that evidence then actually becomes evidence for atheism. So that's roughly how the argument goes. The skeptical theist, to interface with the exact argument that you just gave, would deny premise five. So what premise five says is, anytime God exists, so God's existence would be a sufficient condition, then you would expect that he would make himself known at all times to all creatures and so forth. And the skeptical theist says, why should we think that's true? And it seems like the reason that we think that's true is because we know that other things being equal, God would want a relationship with us and so forth. But remember, skeptical theists are skeptical about how that other things being equal premise plays out in the actual world, because everyone knows other things aren't always equal. So for all we know, God has some reasons to remain hidden for a time or to allow people to continue on their way without having some kind of religious experience or whatever. Skeptical theists just think we're not in a position to tell whether those reasons are at play or not. 
And so while we're happy to say that other things being equal, God would like a relationship with everyone, we're not in a position to say how that desire plays out in the actual world. And so we're not willing to say then that non-belief in the actual world is a reason to be an atheist. Very good. And again, how would this contrast this right this with a, strategy with a from the skeptical theist with a theodicist? Perfect. So theodicists, again, are going to look at the hiddenness in the world, which again is non-belief in God, and they're going to try to offer explanations for that. In other words, from my perspective, they're going to try to get into God's head to see what he was thinking when he decided not to reveal himself to particular people. So an example of this, people say things like, well, look, would you have really cultivated your character and exercised truly free choices if your mom followed you around every moment of your life? Jordan, think back to those high school parties you went to. If your mom was right behind you at every moment, would you have been tempted in all the same ways and made all the decisions that you did and the answer is supposed to be probably not. And it was a good thing that you were sort of out from under her guise for a while while you exercised your free will and while you decided what kind of person you were going to be and when you wrestled with temptation. And the thought then is God's giving us the same kind of space. So this is a kind of epistemic distance theodicy. And again, what the theodicy is just trying to do is identify some kind of good that could come from non-belief and then deposit that that's the reason why God allows the unbelief. And the skeptical theist, again, just like the problem of evil, thinks that both sides are going too far. On the side of the person offering the argument from hiddenness, the skeptical theist thinks we just don't know enough to know whether God would eliminate all non-belief. And against the theodicist, the skeptical theist is thinking, how can we know that that's the reason why God would allow non-belief as opposed to both sides think they know more than they really do, says the skeptical theist. And the proper position to take is one of a kind of epistemic humility. We can't tell that the hiddenness is evidence for atheism. We also can't tell what was going on in God's head, but our inability to do that sort of doesn't push us one way or the other. Very good. All right, so we're about to begin the second portion of the interview and which I think is the most interesting part. So we've seen how skeptical theism is defined, the specific in inference that they're that they're going to target, a no seem inference. And now we want to know is skeptical theism true? What's the best arguments for and what's the best arguments against? So in just a moment I'm gonna put up a slide that very neatly lays out the four arguments in favor and the four arguments against. But before I do that, I want to mention two things from the live chat. One was, thank you so much. Praise Jesus is the name of this YouTuber. He just gave a $7 super chat. Very generous. Thank you so much for doing that. And also, Andrew Moon picked up on your comment about these uh, high school parties. And he wants to know what high school parties were you involved in? Well, let's just say I think the epistemic distance theodicy has something going for it, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's put up this little slide that I made that will neatly lay these out. So we're asking, is skeptical theism true? And I've listed four arguments here 
for skeptical theism. And here are the four arguments. There's an argument from analogy, an argument from uh, complexity, an argument from alternatives, and an argument from enabling premises. And the four arguments against skeptical theism that we're going to discuss, uh, it, and each one of these are going to try to point out some kind of inconsistency with, some, with something else that we want to hold on to, essentially. So uh, skeptical theism would be inconsistent with theological knowledge. It would be inconsistent with trust in God. It would be inconsistent with moral facts, and it would be inconsistent with moral knowledge. Okay, so let's start with uh, the four arguments in favor of skeptical theism. So okay, good. starting with the argument from analogy, walk us through that one. Yeah, let me first actually just say something about the landscape of reasons. There are very good, very smart philosophers who are Christians who are not skeptical theists that endorse other ways of replying to this argument. Furthermore, there are non-theistic philosophers who endorse the skeptical part of skeptical theism. So I don't want to give the impression that this is a slam dunk case. I'm a skeptical theist, but I think there's a there's a, a kind of realm of competing reasons out there. And what I'll do is try to give you the best case for it and the best case against it. So on the case for it, consider first a kind of argument by analogy. Suppose a little kid is getting a painful inoculation and she thinks to herself, why are my parents doing this? Why would they take me to the hospital, hold me down, let somebody stick a needle in my arm? This is, this is terrible. I can't even imagine why my parents would do this to me. We probably don't think that child would be justified in concluding that just because she can't see a reason for her parents acting in a certain way, that there isn't such a reason. Here's another analogy. match and you watch some oh, one grand second, master Dr. your screen just froze up yeah, go ahead. for maybe two seconds so you had just finished this analogy with the child so okay. just pick back up there got it okay so there's the child parent analogy here's a different analogy that i think has the same kind of lesson suppose you know nothing about chess and yet you're watching a chess match between grandmasters and you see one of them move in a particular way, say, to sacrifice a piece. And you think to yourself, gosh, I have no idea why she did that. Do you think you should conclude on the basis of that? Well, I guess she probably didn't have a reason to do that. That seems like the last thing that you should conclude. So the idea is children shouldn't be concluding things about their parents on their inability to identify a greater reason. Novices shouldn't be concluding things about chess masters based on their inability to see reasons. If it's true in those cases, how much greater is the intellectual gulf between humans and God? If you don't think kids should be drawing no-seam inferences about parents or that novices should be drawing no-seam inferences about chess masters, then humans are in no position to draw no-seam inferences about God. So, so that's that the is the thing. argument from analogy. Exactly. So Do you, you want to say anything case, more about that? I just, say, I just think that if you're not a skeptical theist, you owe us an explanation for why you don't accept no CM inferences in those other cases, but you do accept them for the argument from evil. I think there's a challenge there. I think the skeptical theist is being consistent because she's not willing to accept those kind of inferences in either realm. And if you're willing to accept them in one and not the other, I think you owe us an explanation for the difference there. 
Good. So okay. what about the argument from complexity? The argument from complexity appeals to the fact that the more we learn about the world, the more complex it turns out. When we start seeing how the smallest little physical bit on one side of the globe can affect things on the other side of the globe, that should make us all the more humble about making predictions about kind of all things considered judgments about what's good or evil. Sometimes people call this the butterfly effect. Really small changes in a system can lead downstream through a kind of domino effect to really crazy outcomes. So one example that's in the literature on, on skeptical theism has to do with the position that Lady Churchill slept in the night that Winston Churchill was conceived. The idea was Winston Churchill's parents conceived him and his mother either went to sleep in this position or this one or slightly different or slightly different or slightly different. And the mere angle of her body would have affected which sperm reached her egg. That would have affected which child she had. If she had had a different child, we wouldn't have had Winston Churchill. If we didn't have Winston Churchill, World War II would have gone really differently. We might not even be having this conversation. It feels like the man in the high castle. And when you start thinking about how our decisions ramify across complex scenarios, the more you think about that, the more reluctant you should be to make judgment calls like which position somebody sleeps in doesn't have a different, doesn't make a difference in the overall moral scheme of things. The world is so complex that that's six levels above our pay grade. And that makes the skeptical theist position look all the better. And do you want to mention any kind of comeback from the non-skeptical theist? No, because I think, I think that case is a pretty good one. I mean, the, the best thing to say, I think, in response to that has to do with one of the objections that we'll consider to skeptical theism, this objection about moral facts. So let's hold it and we'll connect it to that. Because basically the objection might be consequences don't matter for morality. And so even if it's hard for us to predict long-term consequences, that's not going to be relevant to what's morally right or wrong. So there, I think there is a response there, but let's hold it to the objections. Sure. Yeah, so we'll mention okay. that one in a few minutes. Okay, so then the third argument, oh, wrong slide. The third argument for skeptical theism is the argument from alternatives. So what right. is this one? So really, this, this has a name in the, in the philosophical literature, and it's a defense. So when you offer a defense to some kind of accusation, an accusation of gratuitous evil or gratuitous hiddenness or whatever, you're not trying to identify what the explanation really is for that evil. That's what a theodicist is doing. But you're identifying what the explanation might be for all you can tell. And the idea is, if you have some live possibilities out there that you're not in a position to rule out, then you have no business deciding that a particular instance of evil was gratuitous or whatever. So for example, some philosophers have offered examples like this. Suppose you have this evidence against your friend that suggests that your evidence is guilt, your, your friend is guilty of some kind of crime. But you also know that there's this totally plausible story such that if it were true, your friend would be exonerated. There was some strange coincidence and his twin was in town and it was his twin that you saw in the video or whatever. Now, you're not saying you actually believe this story. You just are not in a position to tell 
whether this particular possibility is more likely to be the case than the kind of story that you know the prosecutor say is offering. Well, if you're really not in a position to rule it out, you should be skeptical. You should withhold judgment. And so when it comes to things like evils or divine hiddenness, some philosophers offer these kind of possible explanations for evil. They don't say that they're the real explanations or that they're correct. That's what a theodicist says. But they just say, look, I can't tell whether this explanation is the right one or not. Nothing I know rules it out. And so if I'm not in a position to rule it out, I shouldn't make a judgment call on whether or not God actually did have a reason for this particular thing. So it's an argument from live alternatives. The idea is if you can come up with these live alternatives, and if God would have good reasons for doing what he does on these live alternatives, then you have no business concluding that God didn't have a reason for allowing some particular case of evil. So just to <laughs> make sure I'm understanding correctly, does that, that to me sounds like what we mean when we talk about a defense. Right. So is. the skeptical theist, when appealing to this argument, is saying, we have several defenses that so simply because they're defenses, they're possibility, they're possible explanations. We're not in a position to know if this is the actual explanation. And because we're not in a position to know if it's the actual one, we block that no CM inference, right? That's exactly right. You, you can't go through with the no, no CM inference while you still have this live possibility that you haven't ruled out. A good example of a philosopher who deploys this kind of strategy is Peter Van Inwagen in his little short book, The Problem of Evil with Oxford. Um, and he develops a kind of free will defense. He doesn't offer it as a theodicy because he doesn't know whether it's true. But he also doesn't know that it's false. And he says as long as that's a live option for him, he shouldn't follow the atheistic line of reasoning uh, to the conclusion that God doesn't exist. He just doesn't know enough. And so he may not have called himself a skeptical theist, but he is deploying a kind of skeptical re reply to the argument from evil. For anyone interested in Peter Van Inwagen's thoughts on the problem of evil and his expanded kind of free will defense, I actually made a video on this. You can go and look for it on the channel. It's pretty easy to find. So, okay. Now the fourth, I keep putting up the wrong slide by accident. My apologies. The fourth argument in favor of skeptical theism is the argument from enabling premises. So yeah, so let me say something about what that. Time. Yeah, I might. So let me say first about something about what this is. An enabling premise is some additional assumption that you have to add to a line of reasoning in order to get logically from your first premise to the conclusion. So it's a bit of information that has to be added in. The idea being whatever kind of evidence you've adduced in premise one, that evidence isn't potent until you add some additional thing to it. And that's the enabling premise. It enables the kind of initial evidence that you've gathered to then be leveraged into this conclusion about an evil being gratuitous or not. And so some philosophers are skeptical theists because they think for the noceum inference to work, we have to add a bit of information first. And when it comes to cases like evil and God's being justified in allowing evil or hiddenness or whatever, that information isn't available to us. And that's why the no inference doesn't go through. So the idea, again, briefly is 
we need additional information for the noceum inference to be valid. And that information is not available when it comes to arguments from evil or arguments from divine hiddenness. So that's kind of the general structure of how this defense goes. Let me give you two examples of the kind of additional information that philosophers think you would need to have. So one strategy is to say that noceum inferences are good only if we add to them a kind of conditional premise. And the conditional premise says something like this. If you would expect to see something if it were there, then you're not seeing it is good evidence for it's not being there. This seems to explain the elephant and the germ case. Why is the noceum inference good in the elephant case and not in the germ case? Well, because the noceum inference needs this a bit additional bit of information and you have it in the elephant case and you don't in the germ case. In the elephant case, you believe that if there were elephants in the room, the room would look very different to you than it does now. In other words, the presence of elephants would have some kind of effect on your perceptual experiences. And since you have that background information, the fact that you don't see elephants is a good reason for thinking that they're not there. Contrast this with the germ case. You know full well that your hands could have plenty of germs on them right now, and it would look exactly the same to you if they weren't there. You can go wash your hands so that they're germ-free, and they'll look just the same as they did before you washed them. So in the germ case, you don't have that additional information. Okay, so that's how this kind of enabling premise works. You have to have this conditional background commitment to your ability to see something if it were there. So now apply this to the case, say, of the argument from evil. Suppose God had a reason for allowing some particular bad thing to occur. Is it likely that you would know about that reason or not? Is this case more like the elephant case or the germ case? The skeptical theist says, this is more like the germ case. God could have all kinds of reasons for doing things, and the world would look exactly the same to you, even if he had those reasons. We're not somehow privy to the grand scheme of things or what's going on in God's head or whatever. And given that we're not privy to those kind of things, we don't have that background information that says, if there were a reason, I'd likely know about it. And since we don't have that enabling premise, the noceum argument doesn't go through. So that's one example of an enabling premise. Is that clear? Do you have any questions about that one before no, that I That makes perfect sense. That makes perfect okay, sense. Okay, great. Great. Here's, an, here's another example of this strategy saying we need additional information before the noceum goes through. This strategy thinks of the noceum inference in inductive terms. What we're doing is we're making a kind of inductive move off of our base of evidence. And this argument says, or this, this kind of enabling premise strategy says, inductive arguments are good only if you have information about your sample. So suppose you go out to a pond and you take a cap full of water and you go measure it and it comes back acidic. Should you conclude that the pond as a whole is acidic? No, because you took one sample from one place in a pond at one location at one time on one day and whatever. Your sample is too small, in other words, to capture that kind of robust inference. Now, if you sample from all over the pond at different days at different depths and whatever, and they all come back acidic, 
Now you got a pretty strong inductive reason for thinking that the pond is acidic. Okay, apply this now to reasoning about evils and about goods, and in particular about the connection between evils and goods. Well, what reason do we have for thinking that our knowledge of what's good is representative of the sample of all the good things that there are? What reason do we have for thinking that our knowledge of the bads in the world is representative of all the bad things that there are? And third, what reason do we have for thinking that our knowledge of the connection between goods and bads, what, when good things allow for bad things and bad things allow for good things, what reason do we have for thinking our knowledge of those connections is representative of all the connections there are? Philosophers like Michael Bergman say, we're in no position to make any kind of judgment call about whether our knowledge of goods and evils and their connections is representative of the kinds of goods, evils, and connections that there are. And until we have a representative sample, finding an evil and just concluding that it, it, it A was evil and B had no connection to something greater is like taking one cap full of water out of the pond and deciding that the entire pond is acidic without having a representative sample. So again, these kind of inferences can be good, but they're good only when we have this kind of inductive base to go along with it. And we don't have that enabling information when it comes to arguments for atheism, like the argument from evil or the argument from divine hiddenness. That's the fourth argument. Very good. And I, I just want to ask one additional kind of follow-up to that last thought there. And that is, I, I can understand what we mean when we talk about a good. So just as an example, loving my family good thing. Torturing my family, bad thing. So I've got a, that's, that's one little data point in the things that are good and one little data point in the things that are bad. But you also mentioned this connection between the two. By that, are you talking about an example where I have to go through uh, almost kind of like what, what's referred to in soul building theodicy. So you have to go through some kind of pain but that gives you the opportunity to show courage or something exactly. like that yeah exactly i mean just think of the example to go back to the analogy case think of the example i gave earlier when i take my son to get a shot he clearly experiences some bad things he's fearful he experiences pain he's confused other things being equal all of those are bad things but the pain given the way the world works the pain is a necessary condition for protecting him from something much worse down the road. So there's a kind of connection between something's being that something that's evil and something that's good. And my son is was at one point in time unable to see that connection. Now, as adults, we can see that connection. But the question is, how many of those connections do we know about? Why well, think that our knowledge of the connection between those things is exhaustive of all the different connections that there are? And the skeptical theist says, until you have a reason to think that your knowledge in that area is suitably representative, you ought not be making the kind of inferences that we're making in an argument from evil. Very good. That was clear. All right. So Great. I want to move now to the four arguments against skeptical theism. And to be fair, in the paper that we're trying to summarize that you 
published with Philosophy Comp- uh, Philosophy Compass, you actually give, if my accounting was correct, eight arguments against skeptical theism. But I only picked four, partly because there were four of them that just weren't all that impressive to me. And also because these four, I thought, there's something here. So that's why I did that. Okay, these the first one in this list of arguments against skeptical theism is the the inconsistency with theological knowledge. Right. So just in general, anytime someone's a skeptic, I guess the primary consideration is to try to limit your skepticism in such a way that it's reasonable. If you don't put fences around it, it's going to bleed out into all areas of life. And then before you know it, you're a global skeptic, and then you have much deeper troubles than we could talk about in one evening. So everybody's a skeptic about something. And what we try to do is find principled reasons for being skeptical here and not over here. And that's what a lot of these objections are doing. A lot of these objections are pushing on skeptical theists to make sure they're consistent and that they can carefully wall in their skepticism in such a way that it doesn't bleed out into other areas of their lives. This first objection is in a species of that very type of objection. And the thought goes like this. Skeptical theism is a knife that cuts both ways. If it undercuts arguments for atheism, it might also be in a position to undercut at least certain arguments for theism. And if that's true, then it could have implications for what we know about God or even whether there is a God. So quick example. Sometimes theists posit the existence of order or fine-tuning in the universe as a reason to think that God exists. Or actually, sometimes people even posit the existence of intelligent life or rational life, and they sort of reason like this. Well, look, God would want somebody to interact with and talk to and be a really good thing for there to be rational beings. And so when we find rational beings in the world, that must be a reason to think that there's a God. And you might think skeptical theism cuts against that kind of reasoning because it's an example of all things considered reasoning rather than a, a, a kind of prima facie reasoning. So what you're saying is, well, God wouldn't have any trumping considerations for keeping intelligent life out and other things being equal, intelligent life is a good thing. So intelligent life counts as evidence for the existence of God. And you might think if you're skeptical about evil counting against God, likewise, you should be skeptical about intelligence or rational life counting for God. So the skepticism is sort of cutting in both ways. Whether you think that is a devastating objection just depends on, I think, how much those arguments for the existence of God matter in your overall worldview, whether you think those kind of arguments hold water and are important, and whether you think that those kind of arguments really are cases of all things considered reasoning versus prima facie kind of reasoning. So again, whether this objection ultimately is persuasive, I think, depends on a number of different things. And I should note, some skeptical theists are just happy to accept this. They're like, yeah, we should be more humble about the arguments that we're offering for the existence of God, too. We can't be so quick to latch onto evidence that we like and leverage it for the existence of God and then be resistant when the atheist tries to do the same thing. Very good. I'm sure more will come up about that. Oh, I'm not, I'm not sure why this is happening. Every time I speak, I hear an echo. I don't know what... Uh... I don't know if it's... Are you hearing an echo on your end? Hmm. No. Okay. Well, anyway, what I was going to say was 
this this argument well actually i forgot my thought <laughs> i i mentioned the echo and i forgot oh well we'll move on to the next one. Oh, i was going to say okay. this will probably come up more in the q a so i have i have some questions about that particular argument that i'll save for the q a okay so the next one is uh the inconsistency with trust in god right so this objection says look even if your knowledge of God or your evidence of God isn't undercut or hampered by your skepticism, your relationship with God or your ability to trust God will be undercut by your skepticism. And the thought goes something like this. There, there are several different ways, several different permutations or ways of developing this objection. One way says, look, you can't really be in a close relationship with someone if you don't ever understand why they do what they do. If the skeptical theist says that we should be ignorant of God's ways, God's ways aren't our ways, then it's not really clear what kind of a relationship you could be in with that person if you're just truly ignorant of everything that they're doing. Another way to develop the argument has to do with other facets of a relationship that are really important, things like trust. Um, Theists often trust God. They take God at his word and so forth. And Some people challenge skeptical theists, thinking that they're not able to do that. The thought is this, well, look, sure, maybe God told you something, but for all you know, there's this really good reason why God was deceiving you on this case, or some really good reason why God might take it back in the future. And by your own lights, you're not aware of those kind of reasons. And so you really shouldn't trust anything that God tells you. God could be deceptive. You'd never know about it. So how could you even be in a kind of relationship with that kind of being? So that's the second line of objection. It's not that what you know is undercut. It's that your ability to engage in a meaningful relationship or being or your ability to trust God is somehow undercut by your skepticism. Now, again, there's go ahead. And I was I was going to say that I've seen this developed in particularly targeting scripture. So how do you know you can trust what's said in scripture if, for all you know, God has these really great reasons for deceiving you on that, for for making it seem like you can trust the Bible, but really there's these great reasons that you can't. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that would be an example of that. If you think of scripture as being a kind of divine testimony, then the thought is, why should you trust testimony coming from God? After all, by your own lights, God could be tricking you. Now, let me just say really briefly, I don't find this uh, this objection persuasive at all. And it's because I think the mere possibility of deception isn't enough to undermine a relationship. Look, I know full well that my children might be deceiving me about things. I know full well that my spouse might be deceiving me about things. In fact, I think that there are circumstances under which my wife ought to deceive me about particular kinds of things. And yet it's not as if that possibility somehow undercuts my ability to have a relationship with her or, or take anything, take any other, take this idea about deception. Look, any book you pick up, you know, full well is fallible. It will contain mistakes. It could deceive you, whatever. But we don't think that a prerequisite for trusting a source of information is that you think it's perfect. So I think even if you think that there might be some case where God has a reason to to deceive you, that doesn't somehow poison the entire well of information that you might get for God. So I 
I, I myself don't find this objection persuasive, but there are many people who do and, and think that the kind of skepticism that you have to take on to be a skeptical theist really does undercut your ability to have an authentic relationship with God. Great. All right. Well, not great. I, I don't want to undermine people's relationship with God, but uh, the, I, I understand the argument. So the third one is inconsistent uh, inconsistency with moral facts. Yeah, good. So this one, Jordan, will connect then with this line about complexity that we talked about in the case for skeptical theism. Some people think that skeptical theists are committed to thinking that the moral facts or moral theories or moral principles turn out a certain way and that that certain way is bad. So just to put it really crassly, some people think, look, if you're a skeptical theist, you must be some kind of utilitarian who thinks that God is up there making these utilitarian calculations. And as long as he can get enough good out of torturing people, God's fine with it. And, and some people think, and I'm not a utilitarian, so I guess I can't be a skeptical theist. Um, Marilyn Adams pressed me on, on, on that particular kind of point, uh, that McBrayer must be some, some sort of utilitarian. And I think John Stuart Mill thought God was a utilitarian, so what's so bad about that? <laughs> um, so the idea is skeptical theists are committed to a kind of ends justify the means kind of morality. Insofar as we think that's not the right way to think about morality, we shouldn't be skeptical theists. Okay, let me say quickly that I think that objection misses the mark. I think there's something right about it, but it's not true that to be a skeptical theist, you have to be a utilitarian. I think that one of two, you have to say one of two things. Maybe these both end up being bad and that's fine. So then this would be a kind of objection. But I think you have to say one of two, kind of, one of two things. One, you have to agree that there are no moral principles that are absolute. By absolute, I mean exceptionless. So you have to be willing to say that at some point, there's no moral principle that isn't trumpable by higher considerations. It need not be a crass kind of consequentialism, but you do have to think on this one kind of horn of the dilemma that there are no absolute moral principles. And that's too much for some people's stomach. Some people say things like, it's always wrong to kill innocent people or it's always wrong to give people what they des don't deserve or whatever. And if that turns out to be true, then it is going to be very hard to get this kind of skeptical theist uh, line working because now it doesn't really matter what happens in the long-term consequences. Even if some evil is connected with compensating goods, that won't justify the allowance of that evil. The second horn of the dilemma is to grant that there might be some absolute moral prohibitions, but to insist that the kind of evils that we see in the actual world are not instances of violating those particular absolute prohibitions. So you either have to think that there are no exceptionless absolute moral principles, or you have to think there are some, but the kind of evils that we see in the world with hurricanes and cancer and whatever don't violate whatever absolute principles there are. So this objection tries to connect skeptical theism with its normative ethical underpinnings to try to see whether skeptical theists are committed to an implausible or controversial kind of ethics. Now, if I understood you correctly there, that second horn that you just mentioned where you say, hey, there, you might think of it in a kind of deontological sense, like there are some things that are just 
that these are things that can't be violated. There's no outweighing goods. They're just wrong, period. End of story. But, so what, you you were presenting it as a dilemma. So what's the dilemma for the skeptical theist if they take that horn? So if the skeptical theist takes that horn, the ch- it's not really a dilemma per se, but it's a challenge. The challenge is then to show that the kind of evils that we experience in the world are not violations of whatever absolute principles there are. So let me just give you an example of this, just so you can sort of feel what this objection is like fleshed out. Some people think that an absolute unbreakable moral principle is that you shouldn't make one person suffer for the benefit of someone else. If it's ever okay to allow someone to suffer when you could stop it, then the only justifying conditions must have to do with that person herself. I can't make Jordan suffer for the good of someone else and have that be morally acceptable. So anytime it's okay to allow an instance of evil or allow someone to suffer, it has to be for that person's own good. And if you think that, then if you look around the world, you think there are all kinds of cases where people suffer terribly and it doesn't look like it's for their good at all. When you think of small children being abused and then killed or, I mean, they don't have time to reflect on it or be courageous or, I mean, awful things happen that don't look like they're connected at all to someone's, some particular person who suffers greater good. And so if, in fact, that's an absolute moral principle, the skeptical theist is going to have a really hard time seeing how that's not violated in the actual world. Okay, I see. Uh, so then the last <laughs> argument here was the argu- uh, inconsistency with moral knowledge. Yeah, this is the big one. This is where people spend most of their time in the skeptical theism literature. And I think this is a really important objection. So let me try to make you feel the force of it. Jordan and I are hiking through the woods. We come upon a pond. We look out and there's a small child drowning in the pond. And Jordan says, Justin, There's a child drowning in the pond. We should go save him. And Jordan starts to take off his shirt and shoes and whatever. And then Justin, the skeptical theist, says, but Jordan, wait. For all we know, God has some reason for allowing that child to drown. For all we know, that child is going to be the next Hitler or who knows? The world is complex and there's all we're not in a position to tell what the greater good is. So really, we ought not be involved and we should just go along our merry way. That would be an awful thing for someone to say. And if that's what the skeptical theist is stuck saying in a case like that, that would be a really serious objection. And you can see why people would argue that skeptical theists are stuck with that kind of position. If you can't make these kind of all things considered judgments, how are you supposed to deliberate about what to eat in the morning or what to major in in college or who to marry or whether you should have children or what position you should sleep in at night. I mean, it looks like all of those things are now sort of off the table for us. Okay, so that's the objection. Let me just say a couple things about ways of kind of diffusing it. One way of diffusing it appeals to divine revelation. And people say, look, it's true that we can't make all things considered judgments, but We also know that God has commanded us to act in particular ways, to love our neighbor and whatever. And as long as we think that's reliable information that we're getting from God, we still have a moral reason to save the child, even though we also grant that we can't see the larger picture of things. So we basically have this extra stream of information that comes into our moral calculations 
that saves us from the, the skepticism that comes with skeptical theism. That's one kind of response. Another kind of response is, look, whether you have a moral reason to do something depends on your knowledge of the situation. If you don't know that something bad will come from saving the child, and you do know that drowning is a bad thing, then you have a reason to save the child. What you have a moral reason to do depends on what's in your head. Now, if you compare our position with God's position, God knows a whole lot of stuff that we don't. God may not have a reason to save the drowning child, even though Jordan does have that reason. And it turns out that's because moral reasons are supervenient on or depend on the kind of commitments that we have in our head. And that way of thinking about it, your skepticism doesn't infect your moral deliberations. You still have reasons to do all kinds of things. It just turns out that God's reasons are different than yours because God knows more stuff than you do. One last response, because I think this is a really interesting challenge to skeptical theism, is really just to kind of bite the bullet and say, look, insofar as you think that consequences matter for morality, and insofar as you grant that getting really, really good things out of something might justify allowing an otherwise bad thing to happen. So insofar, in other words, as you're not an absolutist about morality, yes, your moral deliberations just got a whole lot more complicated. But guess what? That's true for everyone, whether you're a skeptical theist or not. Anyone who thinks that the right thing to do somehow depends on this cashing out of long-term consequences is going to be stuck making these really hard judgment calls about whether we should intervene in particular cases. But that's not a problem unique to skeptical theists. That's a problem that utilitarians and other consequentialists face too. And, and just, just in case any of your viewers are interested, there's a great paper by James Lenman that presses this point, not in relation to skeptical theism, but it's a paper called Consequentialism and Cluelessness. And it basically argues that once you're committed to the idea that consequences matter in morality, we're ultimately clueless about how to cash out rightness and wrongness, especially if you think that's the only thing that matters. So that way of looking at it, this objection isn't an objection unique to skeptical theism. It's one that applies to anybody who thinks consequences count. Very good. All right. I want to go to questions. So let's begin with... Uh, Phil with skills question, and I'll put it on the screen here. Skeptical theism, does it weaken natural theology arguments? Now, you already kind of addressed this, but I, I would like you to maybe say more because I know I've produced a video on a Bayesian fine-tuning argument, and in that video, I make the move that you described where I say there's good reason for God to create embodied beings, that would be a good thing. So that at least raises, uh, gives some kind of positive probability to him creating, creating humans. How much exactly is, depends, but, but there's, there's a reason there. So what do you think? Does skeptical theism weaken natural theology? I think the short answer is yes. And I think it's because it blocks our ability to make the kind of inferences that you were just making. I think what we can say is other things being equal, God would have an interest in interfacing with these kind of beings or creating a world that has a certain level of fine tuning and so forth. 
But when you make a, a an all things considered judgment about that, it seems like what you're saying is, and there were no other compensating reasons that would keep God from doing things in this way. And that's why this is then evidence for the existence of God. Then I do think skeptical, skeptical theism blocks that. Now, let me let me just back off of that just to try to make it more palatable. Remember, I said skeptical theism has two components. It has this metaphysical component, theism, and the skeptical component. And I said the skeptical component is squishy. You could make it more narrow or you could make it more general. There are some philosophers who have tried to tailor that skepticism to where it's more narrow. In particular, they've tried to narrow it in such a way that it targets arguments from evil while leaving natural theology kind of arguments unscathed. For my own part, I think that's unsuccessful. But I don't, I don't think we should just give up on the project. There are philosophers like Mike Ray at Notre Dame who consider themselves skeptical theism in some, skeptical theists in some sense, but try to tailor their skepticism really narrowly so that it doesn't undercut those kind of arguments. But at the very least, Jordan, what I think you have to do is more work than you've done so far if the thought for that Bayesian argument is just something like, well, I thought about it, and other things being equal – you know, I think God would like this. And I can't see a reason why God wouldn't do it. So it must be, that seems like a no seem inference to me. I see. So, so you, maybe there's a specific version of a fine-tuning argument that you might find appealing just in spite of skeptical theism. That's my question. Are there still arguments from natural theology that you think these do still seem they 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 go unscathed by skeptical theism. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think arguments. Let me just say something really general about that. I think arguments like the Kalam cosmological argument, where the first stage of the argument is not unique to God per se. The conclusion of the first stage of that argument is there's got to be something beyond the natural world that would start. Those kind of arguments I do think are unscathed by the kind of skepticism because we're not making all things considered judgments about what an infinite being like God would be doing in natural creation. So I don't I don't want to give the impression that natural theology is a dead project or anything like that. I just think we have to be careful to be consistent. If we don't want the atheist to be making no seem inferences in arguments for, for evil, we don't want to turn around and make the same kind of mistake when we're offering our own case for the existence of God. Which I did. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> we all it, have inconsistencies. That's why we're in yeah. this game, right? To try to think through what we think and why we think and try to piece together a worldview that makes the most sense given all of the things that we know. So join yeah. the club. <laughs> Definitely in, in reading your in reading your paper, I'm like, man, skeptical theism it's got more going for it than I than I initially initially I'd be like ah eh, skeptical theism no it's not my it's not my cup of tea but it is appealing and there's good arguments for it I think there's still some arguments against it that that have oomph to them but yeah. they don't have as much oomph as I would like <laughs> so okay. okay then I did my job as a skeptical theist <laughs> <laughs> so. The next question I got from Andrew Moon. And that was, I'm putting it on the screen. He said, and this was, Andrew, you may have to retype your question. I, it didn't come across super clearly. 
that could be because you're abbreviating. He said, on the incompatibility with trust in God, doesn't skeptical theism support thinking not just that God might be lying, but that it's inscrutable whether God is lying? I think the answer to that is yes. Inscrutable means you're not in a position to tell one way or the other. So when the evidence is inscrutable, that just means you're blind to the implications of the evidence. And I do think it's not just the claim that it's possible that God lies, but also the claim that when God lies, if he ever does, then you won't be in a position to tell. It will feel the same to you as when God speaks truly. Now, of course, philosophers like Descartes will think all of this is utter heresy, that God by his very nature is incapable of deception and lying. But so that's a, a different sort of question. Um, but I think Andrew's right. The skeptical theist view is that it's inscrutable. And my response is, and so what? When my wife lies to me and does a good job, as sometimes is morally just, I think, if she does a good job, I can't tell. That's the whole point. That's why she deceives me about whatever it is that was morally justified in deceiving me about. So as long as you're okay with the idea that there are circumstances under which that's morally justifiable, maybe even morally obligatory, then you better think that as a moral agent, your duty is to deceive the person properly so that they can't tell whether you're lying. And then the question is just, okay, once you grant that's a possibility, do you think that effectively blocks a, a, re, a authentic relationship with that person? And I think the answer is no. So I think I can have an authentic relationship with my wife, even though I know not only that it's possible that she deceived me on occasion, but she might even have good moral reasons to deceive me on occasion. And when she deceives me, I won't be able to tell, at least at the time. None of this is to say, by the way, that she couldn't reveal to me later that she deceived me. And actually, nothing's to say that God couldn't do the same thing for us at some future time either. But in either case, I guess I don't see how it's inimical to an authentic relationship. Okay. So, I'm reading one more question here. I know we're about out of time. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll end with this question. It's from Phil with Skill. And he says, Humanity... Uh, Oh, how, however, the problem of evil is still a problem. God has the power to stop suffering, child cancer, and he doesn't. Why? So this might be a good way of just kind of summing up the discussion. Sure. It's a good wrap up. The question is, Phil, why think that's a problem? And it seems like you think that's a problem only if you reason in the following way. Suffering from cancer is a bad thing. God doesn't have any reasons for allowing it. There's no greater good that comes of it. So God wouldn't allow it. And I want to know what your reasons are for that second thing. I want to know why you think that it's not preventing something equally bad or worse. It's not providing for some compensating good or why God doesn't have some kind of justifying reason for allowing that bad thing. I grant you that it's an awful thing. I hope that I, my children never have to experience that. So I'm not denying that. Furthermore, I'm agreeing with you that I can't identify some compensating good. But I'm wondering how you think you're in a position to say that there are no such goods. And if you're not in that position, 
then I wonder why you think it's really a problem. Very good. And this would be an interesting point to mention as well. This would go for animal suffering as well, which for me, that has been the the kind of thorn in the side. I, I want a good solution to animal suffering. So the skeptical theist would say all the same things in that case as well, correct? I think that's exactly right. And right. I think just to be really clear, just to note one final thing, the special challenge I think with that case is that it's not clear how non-human animal suffering benefits the non-human animal itself. At best, it's benefiting us in some way. And you might think that falls afoul then of one of these moral principles that are absolute. For example, if you allow something to suffer, it's got to benefit the sufferer herself. And so maybe that's what makes the animal suffering so poignant or so difficult to deal with. The kind of theodicies that we're used to offering don't seem to apply to animals. And that makes it seem less likely a case where there's some kind of compensating good. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. McBrayer. Do you have any last thoughts before we close the live stream? I don't. I thought that was really fun. Jordan, keep up the good work. That concludes my interview with Dr. McBrayer. Thanks for listening. And if you want to support the work that I'm doing, please consider becoming one of my patrons. You can do that by going to www.patreon.com slash theanalyticchristian. The link is in the notes. And for more resources on Christian philosophy and theology, check out my website, theanalyticchristian.com. See you next time.